Hey, fellow foodies, this is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Now, how many of you love to cook with nonstick pans? I hate washing dishes, so I've always been a big fan of that nonstick magic. That is until I started to learn a little bit more about the potential health hazards of the chemicals that make those pans so easy to clean. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about PFAS, also known as PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances. What are they? When did these enter into the marketplace? How prevalent are they? And what are some of the potential health hazards from exposure to them? Our guest today is Dr. Aaron Baker. Aaron is an associate professor at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. She has published over 150 peer-reviewed papers on different analytical chemistry techniques to study both environmental and biological systems. Erin is currently serving as the Vice President of Education for the International Lipidomic Society. She's the Events Committee Chair for Females in Mass Spectrometry, and she's an Associate Editor for the Journal of the American Society for Mass Spectrometry. She's received seven U.S. patents, two R&D 100 awards, and was a recipient of the 2016 ACS Rising Star Award for Top Mid-Career Women Chemist and the 2022 ASMS Beeman Medal. Currently, her research group utilizes advanced separations and novel software capabilities to examine how the environment affects human health. So it's so great to see you, Erin. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cassie. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really amazed by your work. I'm a big fan of all that you're doing in mass spectrometry. And I really like the fact that you're, you're looking to the environment to understand how some of these industrial innovations have actually leaked out into the environment and in turn how that's coming back to us through um, different exposures. So why don't we maybe start with just an overview of what are these chemicals and when did they start to come into the world? Yeah, so uh, PFAS, and like you already um, introduced them, they actually have been around for quite a long time. And so they came about in the 1940s and were kind of one of those accident chemicals where they were trying to do um, basically better ways of getting uranium and plutonium out for the A-bombs with the Manhattan Project. And as a side product, they produced these fluorinated chemicals that they were like, oh, these are really interesting. You know, grease doesn't stick to this, water doesn't stick to these. These have really unique attributes, but they also um, last a long, long time. And that's why they get that name forever chemicals. The forever chemicals. So these, okay, these are coming from the the atomic bomb projects. <laughs> and how how did something like that end up in our cookware and yeah. in all kinds of other things in the environment? Exactly. And so yeah, they saw these properties and they're like, oh, this is great. Food won't stick to it. That's um our rain gear is basically coated with PFAS because water doesn't go through it. And so as soon as you see your raincoat start to lose its ability to keep the water out, that's basically that PFAS layer getting removed from your raincoats. They're also in Gore-Tex and all other, all kinds of crazy places. And I think the scariest is they're in food wrappers. And so when you think of your pizza boxes that have kind of that shiny um, film on them or in a microwave popcorn bags, that whole inside to keep the popcorn grease from going through as, as the popcorn pops. And then even like burger wrappers so your hands don't get greasy as they put your burger in your burger wrapper. Wow. So, I mean, I never think about things like burger wrappers or, or, or even like our pizza. I just thought that was paper <laughs> or, or wax paper in some cases. This is 
So these are integrated into a lot of our common products. So we really encounter these on a regular basis then is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they basically call them um, coatings that touch foods. And so we get a lot of exposure through um, different things that we put around our leftovers and um, that basically some of our, I guess, uh, freezer food comes in. Wow. And so I know that from, you know, reading more about like I began with with nonstick pans. If you scratch at those pans and they become damaged, you're also scratching into that layer of the PFAS as well. Um, so these are found in pans, they're found in Gore-Tex, in our rain gear, I'm assuming also in gear for, for camping, like your tents to keep it from, you know, mm-hmm. keep grease from coming across, water from coming across. Um, they just seem ubiquitous in many of our modern products today. Yeah, and I think that's one of the sad things is they're all man-made, and so we basically caused this contamination, so there's no PFAS that are naturally occurring right now. And, um, and yeah, like you were saying with the Teflon, they saw these great properties and they're like, oh, this will be so good for our pans because then we don't have to sit there and scrape and scrape and scrape, which mm-hmm. we love that attribute. But as soon as you scratch that, basically the PFAS are going into your body and the PFAS are known to have really bad health effects because they don't like to leave your body. They basically get stuck in your organs as they go through. And so every time you eat them or you drink them in your water, they accumulate. And so they're called bioaccumulative. And so every exposure adds on to itself. Instead of like some of the other things, like some of the pesticides we get in plants, we basically pee those out. Mm-hmm. But these stay with us. And so mm-hmm. what... Can you tell us, like, what are some of the health hazards of having accumulation of PFAS in the body? Yeah, they've been linked to multiple different cancers and so, and also very low fertility rates. And so that's one of the kind of scary, especially kidney cancer, reproductive organ cancer. So a lot of um, testicular cancer, ovarian cancer, and then thyroid cancer is also really high linked to those. But the, I think the biggest scare is also the low fertility rates too. Wow. And I, I would I would hazard a guess that most people had no idea they were getting so many different forms of exposure on a on a regular basis. I mean, I for one I'm really bad about like I like to lick the paper of my <laughs> after the popcorn, you know, is, is popped. And that's not a good idea, I'm guessing. <laughs> I had a student say the same thing after I tell them in a lecture. He's like, I just thought it was butter. Yeah, it's like, well, they don't have like hazard warnings on these bags. I mean, we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit. But let's let's talk about this idea of of chemicals that just don't degrade and how how can one as a chemist trace the movement of these chemicals in the environment? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about your work in, in doing that kind of tracing and investigative work. Definitely. And I guess another thing that's really scary about PFAS is um, the EPA estimates there's over 9,000 different species. So it's a huge class of compounds. It's not just a couple. And it's because of the main parent compounds that are being produced. They can also, some of them do metabolize into different forms that also can last even longer than some of the main forms. But there are certain ones that have been known to be around years. And so like if you've heard of PFOA and PFOS, those are two of the legacy of PFAS that were the, basically the ones developed clear back with the Manhattan Project. And those two did have linkages to these human health problems. And so they've been very regulated and restricted in the last decade or so. Wow. Well, well, before we get into tracking, this is a good question. Why aren't we 
regulating these? I mean, I would think that based on the health hazards, I mean, is it really worth it to put yourself at a cancer risk just so you're, you know, things you you don't get your hands greasy from eating a cheeseburger? But I don't know. I think that is the problem is people have become reliant on them. And so like when you take away their Gore-Tex boots that shed water, people get upset with their feet getting wet. And so then we have to find another product that'll do the same thing. And they're, they're having a hard time finding something that substitutes for the properties that people have come to love in PFAS. But, um, but like the cookware, they, they do know that's bad. And so there's, they're coming out to be a lot of cookware that is saying either PFOA or PFAS free. Yeah, you'll see that in the grocery stores. But we're doing a study right now that we'll hopefully release in the next few months that shows even some of those aren't quite right. Oh no. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so these are, these are out there and they're probably in every single person's kitchen that's listening to the show right now, because if it's not on your nonstick cookware, it's in the lining of your frozen dinners or other kind of takeout food or pizza boxes. It's, it's, you know, or your popcorn, microwave popcorn, it's everywhere. Yeah, I think another one, another product that I forgot to mention too, that's kind of another thing to be worried about is that it's in firefighting foams, but they're, they know it's in there. So they're trying to find firefighting foams that basically minimize the use of these PFAS. But firefighters are some of the people that follow our work the closest because they know every time they go to a fire, they're getting huge exposures of these in the atmosphere as they spray these foams and then that's one of the big problems too is that once they spray these foams it can get in water supplies and so then we start drinking PFAS or it can migrate and that's uh, it gets in the ocean and there's uh, polar bears that have PFAS in their blood that is thought to be because we've got it into the ocean and then it's migrated over to where the polar bears are. Wow, that that leads into another question I had was just how widespread are these? I mean, if you think of places that haven't been highly contacted, like I'm thinking of like, you know, polar bears shouldn't have these in their system. I'm wondering about you know, people that live in remote areas of tropical forests, like are, are, how far are these spread and have, have people started tracking that at all? Yeah, and that's it. So they know with the polar bears, they know it is a global issue, but I'm not exactly sure on the details of like really remote systems, but I think if there's water contact from the ocean, there's a good chance that the PFAS have made it to the beaches. Beaches, wow, wow. Well, let's talk a bit about the chemistry. I wanna, I wanna dive in, because I think you're doing some really cool work with mass spectrometry and, and using some interesting kind of computer software programs to, to model and understand the environmental distribution of these compounds. So why don't you walk us through that? First of all, just give us the basics. Like how does one use a technique like mass spectrometry to analyze a specimen from the environment for PFAS. And that's actually, so I was telling Cassie, I'm in my hotel room here and we're actually at a non-target analysis, environmental analysis conference. And so for what we do, we know that there's these specific PFAS that exist in the environment, but our whole goal of our research is to find the ones that maybe have transformed or new ones that manufacturers are making that people don't know about. And that's where we use mass spectrometry to find basically these new PFAS um, species. And our, with mass spectrometry, we can measure the mass of any molecule in a sample such as water, you know? And so we look in our water and try to see if there's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's there's, in this? <laughs> yeah, if there's things that you wouldn't expect in there and you'd hope that your water is pretty pure, but sometimes you'll see minerals added and we look for those. 
but in areas that are near like where they've had a big fire and the firefighters have spread foams we'll look in the water and see if we can find PFAS and then see if in that water also if there's new species of PFAS that could be occurring even because bacteria could be changing some of them because there are so many species and while a lot of them are very stable some of them do change and transform basically when they get in the environment. And when you say species, just just for clarification, these are not living creatures that when we talk about species on the show, it's often like you genus, species, scientific names, but these are a species in this context represents a different chemical structure of this class of molecules. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a different molecule is, is our species in this case. Yeah. Wow. So one thing that you've done recently that's gotten a lot of attention is, is using environmental samples like from, from pine trees of all things. So what can you tell us about that study and what have you learned from sampling from these trees as you look for PFAS? Yeah, and that was a really interesting study because there's really good methods from the EPA for doing water analyses and for doing like soil analyses, but it's really hard to do environmental and or like um, atmospheric analyses sometimes because you almost need atmospheric monitors where you buy something specific and put it out for a specific period of time and then maybe it has filters that trap environmental contaminants or it can monitor them in some other way. And so we read a paper from a group in China that said they used pine needles from pine trees and they found that that waxy coating. So if you like scratch it with your fingernail, you know, mm -hmm. that wax. Very sticky. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It actually traps contaminants. And so as they're floating through the air, that wax is grabbing all kinds of different things. And that's what we found with our study that we were really excited about is that we could actually take the pine needles and we would actually let them dry. So we put them in an oven, but in very low heat because we didn't want to cause any transformation products or mm -hmm. things. And then once they were dry, then we took them and we put them in a coffee grinder and ground them up into really tiny um, dust. And then we'd extract out whatever was in those pine needles. And we found 76 different species of PFAS in North Carolina, where the paper from China had only shown about 10 to 12 that they'd observed before. But we think it's a combination of we did some optimization in our extractions, pulling the things out of the pine needles. And then also our, our instrument is very new and very sensitive. So we were able to see things at really, really low levels that some people haven't seen yet. Wow. And so did you see a different kind of spatial representation of different different species of PFAS in the environment? Like, because you're working here in the southeast, which is yeah. where I also live. I'm like, where's the most toxic places? Um, and or are there are there historic links to areas where you have greater levels of toxicity? Yeah, so we went we had samples all throughout North Carolina. And this was a great collaboration with Scott Belcher's group at, um, at NC State. So he's a, a professor in toxicology there. And then my student Kaylee Kirkwood is just amazing. And she did all of this work. So I, I, I just to talk about it and they're all the yeah. ones doing the hard work. But um, they went around two different spots in North Carolina where they went near a chemical plant that actually produces PFAS. And then they went near the airports and also military bases because they know they do a whole bunch of firefighter training at the military bases with those firefighting foams. And we did the pine trees around those areas had much higher levels than any of the pine trees that we kind of randomly sampled in between the levels. And we could actually see the levels drop off the further away we got from those different locations. Wow. So there's a really clear correlation then between like these kind of heavy use and exposure to, yeah, it's being found in the trees. Fascinating. I love the idea of, of using pine needles to trap environmental chemicals and then use that as a, as a kind of investigative tool to seeing where these toxins are. 
That's, we loved it too. And the, the funniest thing that came out of this study was um, when we presented the work first, because I'm always big about like, put it out there before it's published and get more ideas of things to do. Somebody goes, well, did you find a pine tree with no PFAS in it? And we didn't like throughout all of North Carolina, we didn't have a single pine tree that didn't have levels that were three times higher then we always use a blank and then we make sure that every PFAS we name is three times higher than anything we see in the blank. And we didn't have any where there were, all of the species were below those blank levels. So then we went to the herbaria and uh, uh, at North Carolina State and Duke and we were able to get samples back to the 1960s. We tried to go earlier, but they'd actually dipped their pine needles in mercury because they were worried that the bugs would eat them throughout time. But um, even when we went back to the 1960s, we still saw PFAS in those earliest pine needle samples, but they were only PFOA and PFOS, which we know were found in the 40s and had been started to be utilized in the 50s. Wow. And so these herbarium specimens, um, just to remind the audience too, an herbarium specimen is like a natural history museum collection, right? Where you take a, a plant, you smush it between paper, it's dried, kept in this museum-like state, and they serve as a record of, of a plant you know, throughout time and space. So we know what species grew exactly where, and it's a physical specimen. So you can go back and look at the, these kind of chemical um, questions, which I think is, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so if you cool. went, yeah, so if you went back even further, like, you know, let's say to the 1920s, you wouldn't expect to find um, yeah. these chemicals. Because exactly. They're so that's, we were hoping we could find some of those and they actually had samples back to, I think the 30, 39 or something was the first specimen those two herbaria had, but it, it was totally mercury dipped and we, we were uh, like, we don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure we could, we could probably track down some more pine needle um, samples going back even further. Some of these collections, well, I know here at, at the Emory Herbarium, we have samples probably going back to the 1920s. I don't think they're all, they did like to use mercury though. <laughs> I'm not sure how many of them have been tipped or not. I was gonna say in the other ones that they, um, there were a couple in between 60s and the 30s that weren't mercury dipped, but they'd soak them in DDT. <laughs> oh, in DDT, yeah. Other, other environmental. Uh... <laughs> so we're like, we don't want those ones either. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. Wow, wow. So. So this is great. So you're able to use these tools to to track these compounds. Now, what do we know about remediation or is there a path to remediation of these compounds? Or are we just basically stuck with them at this point? There's no, is there, is there any way to remove them from the environment? Yeah, so it, that's a, it's a really good question because what we've found is the EPA, when they ask some of these chemical plants to stop moving, using some of these chem chemicals or get rid of them, is they ask them to use thermal oxidizers, which basically heat them really, really, really high and break them into little tiny pieces of the molecules. And mm -hmm. so they think that the smaller PFAS aren't as toxic as these longer chain because the longer chain they think basically get into your organs and kind of really stick where the smaller ones can flush through. And so we did notice that with the chemical plant is we had some samples from um, 2017 were our first samples and then 2019 we looked at them again and after the EPA had asked them to do this to a couple of their species we saw the levels like almost drop down to zero so we know that they're stopping producing them and we weren't detecting those in the pine trees so they weren't in the atmosphere around that plant that's well that's good to know that there are yep. some remediation possibilities and 
What about what about mass spec on human samples? Do you guys do any work on that? I'm thinking of like blood, urine, other kind of metabolomics approaches. Is there a way to track this? I'm just thinking of people, workers, for example, in these factories that produce these chemicals or or produce some of these different products that that use these chemicals. Yeah, definitely. And so we are, we are doing a lot of mass spec on blood. So we, we really like blood, but there's other matrices we're really interested in developing too. Even like you think human hair, they, people do mass spec on hair and um, even fingernails to see if they're, how they, basically when the people encountered these chemicals, the blood is really interesting and scary. Right now in all the studies they've done of PFAS in the blood for people they're seeing that 98 percent of people have pfas in their blood just normal people just like, normal people yeah not highly people working in factories with high, wow exactly wow. and so that's kind of scary and so they haven't told us where that two percent is that doesn't have it in their blood though but yeah just i think just from our normal exposure of our food products and our possibly in the water that you drink that then it just starts circulating around in your blood and then you kind of have these happy PFAS and some of the blood we've looked at um, just normal pooled samples we usually see at least seven different PFAS commonly in these samples. Wow does anyone know like what age you really start to see it I can imagine like post-birth how how early or do any of these products for example baby bottles or other things that that babies gnaw and I don't know like are, are are these also found in those types of products I mean how ubiquitous are these well and the, and the scary thing is they, there's been a lot of studies done with transfer through mother's milk and through like even from what before the baby's born through placenta through things oh, wow. and so we're doing some studies like that now to see if we can look at like um, blood spots when the babies are born and see if we see PFAS levels in like brand new babies but uh, they they know that it's in mother's milk if the mothers are in highly contaminated areas um, for that. There's a few really cool studies there. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, like you said, though, sorry, I kind of went yeah. around. But um, yeah, and so I think there's a big urge to make sure that the products that babies, like you said, are chewing on have no Teflon, no, no compounds that are PFAS, hopefully. But some of those aren't quality controlled very well either. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can just say, like, as a parent, I would like to see more transparency on where these products are found. And I don't know how much you're involved with, like, advocacy or, or legislation or if you have anything to comment on that. But are there is there a movement to try and have better disclaimers about these products in the market? Or is this just kind of something that, that it is how it is and we just have to deal with it? Like... Yeah, there's quite a few people trying to have big um, movements. The funny thing is my group has only been really involved in this for about the last four years when we started. Oh, um, wow. And so mm -hmm. we haven't gotten in, as involved as some of the people that have been around it longer in the field, but we've had such interesting results that uh, we've been adopted by a lot of the <laughs> a lot of We the can imagine. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. I'm excited to be involved longer because I think there is a lot we can do. And I've had my students present at like community engagement type of forums and the community gets so excited that people are actually listening to their worries and actually doing research in those areas. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I mean, it's just amazing because with the chemical tools that you all have to really look at all sorts of different samples, whether it's from human samples or for environmental samples and to be able to track and trace and be able to see or read exactly which PFAS are, are where 
I think that's real. That's a really important tool to have at hand um, as we try and better understand um, what's happening with these exposures. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's that the reason we got adopted, I think, by the PFAS community is because my group was mainly a technology development group. And so we group, make group these great technologies, but then we have to find collaborators to try them out with. And so we'd worked a lot in proteomics and metabolomics before. And then we really started getting pulled into this exposure world, which we're, we're loving to help. But there's times when we go to lab and we optimize an assay we're like, oh, this is awesome. We're seeing these nasty chemical exposures. And then you're like, oh, no, we're seeing <laughs> nasty chemical exposures in real, real people samples, which is really sad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the thing. It's like developing the technology is great, but what you're finding with the technology is yeah. <laughs> scary. Yeah. Well, speaking of the technology, because I do want to spend some time talking about that and kind of maybe you can take us through and unpack some of the different tools that you use within mass spec and especially ion mobility mass spec and how you couple that to different um you know programs to be able to look for these otherwise perhaps not well studied compounds whether they're pfas or other compounds in that you find in the environment how, how does all of that work and that's a very broad question no, no, that's, <laughs> that's, for any like grad students listening that's a one of the funniest things is in grad school and actually even an undergrad, my undergrad um, senior research project was doing ion mobility spectrometry, which I thought I'd go to grad school and do something completely different. And my advisor there, he also did ion mobility spectrometry. And then I went to my postdoc and they're like, oh, if you can do ion mobility spectrometry, that would be great. And it's just, it's followed me throughout my whole career when I thought it would just be this one off. But um, what ion mobility does is it allows us to study the shape of the molecule instead of just the size. Mass spectrometry allows us to look at the mass or like basically weigh a molecule and see its weight. But um, ion mobility lets us look at its three-dimensional shape. And because some molecules that have the exact same weight will actually have completely different shapes. They can fold in, fold out, be very linear. And that's what's really allowed us to look at PFAS is by looking at their shape and their mass, they're completely different than other biological molecules because they have so many fluorines. The fluorine changes the mass per the shape. And so it's it's a really interesting kind of way that that fluorine affects the molecule. And uh, that's really allowed us to be able to identify new PFAS that they might have missed before with some of the other technologies. That's great. So you're, you're using multiple dynamics and to yeah. observe these molecules in the system. That's amazing. That's yeah, great. we also so, um, liquid chromatography too for anybody. Doing oh, this. yeah. So yeah, we do three dimensions and then sometimes we call it four dimensions. So we start with liquid chromatography that looks at the polarity of the molecule. So how well it goes into water or not. And then the, our next dimension is ion mobility for shape. And then our next dimension is the mass spec for size. And then with the mass spec, we can do MSMS or tandem MS and break the molecule into those little tiny pieces and basically make it into puzzle pieces and put the puzzle back together to figure out which pieces were present. And that's where our four dim fourth dimension comes from is that fragmentation. That's great. Yeah, I, I like to liken it to like throwing a puzzle up against a wall right? and then you, and then you kind of piece it back together and that's how you find the mysterious shape of whatever the puzzle was. Exactly. Was. And there's times where that one piece, because we can't fragment very well, can fit in like five different spots. And we're like, okay, now we have a molecule that's somewhat like this, but now we've got to figure out how to even go deeper. Yeah, that's great. Well, what's next on your studies in in on PFAS or in technology developments? Do you, what what do you guys have planned or in the works? 
Yeah, we're really enjoying understanding the human studies. And so that's these blood spot cards. We're really interested in understanding like the maternal transfer to the baby. Of, and do uh, some of these people living in really contaminated areas have children that are born with high contamination levels? And how does that link to maybe problems they have with health? And then, so that's, I think, a really scary area. Another funny study we've been working on with Scott Belcher's team is looking at alligators. And, <laughs> and so we uh, we go out and we catch the alligators and get um, blood samples from them. So we don't harm the alligators. We bring them in and get their blood and measure them and look at them. But they're known to be have really, really robust immune systems. And so if they have any wounds on them, then you're really, really worried about the alligator because something's happened to them. And so we note that, and then we go back to the lab and look at their PFAS levels, and we found huge correlations between the PFAS and the wounds on the alligator. Wow. Yeah, you know, a number of years ago, I saw a study where they were looking at the blood of alligators for antimicrobial peptides that are found and produced by that. These are antibiotics, basically, that the alligators produce themselves to protect themselves. Yeah. And humans also produce their own antimicrobial peptides as well. But the whole time I kept thinking, wow, which grad student signs up for that <laughs> to go and capture? I mean, I'm from South Florida, so I, I I grew up around alligators, and it's it's a it's a that's a that's a brave student to jump in and, and try and grab these, especially if they're injured. I know. Um, that's a, yeah, we go out with people who've worked with them for uh, yeah. 20, 30 years, so that's a good thing. But yeah, as they're pulling the alligator up, and then the first thing you do is you duct tape its mouth shut. You're kind of like. Yeah crap this guy's coming up you know? yeah yeah <laughs> it's like chomp chomp yeah yeah but that's that's interesting though from a perspective of like wound healing and th they are incredibly resilient so if if you're seeing correlations between higher levels of PFAS and their resilience and, and wound healing that's that's really that has broader implications um across across the board yeah and it's really scary because alligators live about 30 to 50 years and so they're very representative mm -hmm. of humans and so you're like these guys have robust immune systems so think of the people that don't have very good immune systems and how this high level of contaminant just stuck in your organs is really affecting your daily lives yeah well i don't know if these studies have been done or not this is just my curiosity but thinking about patients that have that suffer from chronic disease i'm thinking like you know cardiovascular disease or diabetes i mean have studies also have they started to look at these other environmental contaminants within these patients, if that has any role in disease severity, or are these just some of the questions that still need to be explored? I think they're still needing to be explored. I think people are trying. I think sometimes it's hard because just getting a whole bunch of people near a contaminated site or so getting the right population mm -hmm. to study in order to, I think our problem with people is we're also diverse. We eat different things. We live in different areas. Yeah. And so then you have to worry about all those factors with the diabetes or whatever disease you're studying. And so to get a lot of confounding to, factors. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so to get thousands of people in an area that's highly contaminated and then to get enough people in that area with diabetes to get basically your statistical power um, of your study. I think that's where people are really trying with some of these new studies like the um, all all of us, I think, with uh, at Mayo Clinic is trying to look for a million different people to monitor every year for different studies. And I think I think that's where we're really going is like how get this big human population, watch them longitudinally. And then, like, can we start linking some of these um, exposure factors to the diseases they're getting? That's great. Well, and you have so many different 
tools and techniques you have to do all use as you're monitoring them as well. And I think that's what's really exciting, what you're able to bring to the table for this is the ability to really have high resolution monitoring of these environmental toxins. Um, so here we find ourselves, how many years later? 70 years? Like when did the Manhattan Project start, right? Roughly in yeah. that in that ballpark? Um, 70, 70, 80 years after an aha moment. Look at these cool man-made chemicals that we can, you know, make things not stick to. Yeah. 80 years later, we're now realizing, oh, these chemicals are ubiquitous in our environment. They're found in our blood, in our organs. You find them in the trees, in the water, in polar bears. Um, and we still continue to get exposed to them because we constantly use products that have these materials embedded with them throughout our lifetime. So what comes next? I mean, from a, do we just continue using these products because the market pressures are so high and there's so much resistance from industry to, to replace them because they don't have anything that's suitable to replace them with? Um, I don't know. And, and that's a very, again, a very hard, large question that I don't know that anyone has the answer to, but I, I'd love to have your thoughts. Like, you know, what do we do now that we're here? Yeah. And that's, so there have been a few species that have been regulated. So that's, that's a good thing. And that, so they're getting rid of the ones that they know are the most toxic. But the scariest thing is with our non-targeted analyses where we're looking for things people don't know are out there. Now we're finding new molecules that are replacements that are coming out that the industry is introducing, but not necessarily saying all the time that they are introducing. So mm -hmm. that that's a little scary too. But um, like another location that was frightening that they found PFAS was actually the top of Mount Rainier because so many people hike up there with all their Gore-Tex stuff. Wow. And there's big, um, I guess there's big movements though by companies like Patagonia and some of those to try and reduce their amount of PFAS or get rid of PFAS. And um, even Starbucks is saying in the next, I think it's two years, they want to have PFAS out of all of their food wrappers, which is, so there's companies that are taking a stand. And I think, I think that's the main thing is hopefully more and more of these companies and industries will take a stand to try and remove them out of their products. Yeah, because I've thought so much about like plastics. How do I reduce plastic use yeah. in foods? But actually, I haven't really thought about a lot of the paper products because I always assumed the paper products were safe because they're paper, but they're not just paper. They're yeah. embedded with this stuff. So what do you, I mean, knowing all that you know about all these products, like, do you have any tips for people for their just day-to-day -day life? Like, are there certain things that you avoid because you like certain types of wrappers that you avoid because you just know that these are exceptionally high in these um, in these products yeah, or in, so, these, in these chemicals. Exactly. So uh, we haven't even tested it, but microwave popcorn bags are supposed to be very high. But our group was even like, we should test that. We have the tools. Um, but one of the things is we went to a silicon microwave popcorn maker now so that we can still have our, I love popcorn. And then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so then we still get it, but now instead of having the microwave popcorn bags, then we have it in our little silicon um, pampered chef popper. <laughs> so nice. But nice. yeah, so we're trying to trade things out like that. And and when I go out for um, food, I try to see what they have as possible, like leftover containers, you know, so that you're not hopefully taking or pay, taking your food that was actually prepared without PFAS and then putting it in a container that has PFAS. And um, so that that's some of the things that I think about personally. 
but it, it is really hard. Like who doesn't want to order order some nice pizza sometimes when you're tired on a Thursday night? And, and we know that some of those um, little liners in there have PFAS in them. Yeah. And this, so thinking about the takeout food, let's think about this for a moment. Cause you know, I've, I've tried to stay away from styrofoam because it's bad for the environment, but maybe that's actually safer for your health because it's not going to have the PFAS that these paper line products have. What about just plastic containers? Some restaurants use plastic containers. Do those have PFAS as well? Yeah, so we um, haven't seen the PFAS in the plastic, but then you're into the microplastics. So then like, you're the microplastic. <laughs> it's like you can't win. You're just not allowed to have takeout or order pizza any longer, foodies. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's in so many things. I guess, uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a bit of a minefield to navigate all of that it really yeah. is yeah my goal is hopefully like starbucks is like some of these companies that we get a lot of our products from will be like oh why do i really need this little sheet to go under my pizza like you said it does it really hurt if like grease comes through after 20 minutes of your pizza and it's pizza yeah longer? Yeah. Well, I think it starts with with making people more aware of some of the issues, because like I said, you know, I I, I do a lot of natural products chemistry. I don't, you know, work with, you know, synthetic chemistry. So I wasn't as aware of, of all the places these compounds are found and like where they're found. That's, and um, even me, like I, I moved from being in the national lab in Washington state where we didn't really mm -hmm. talk about PFAS down to North Carolina. And because they do have the plant that manufactures PFAS there, it was a pretty big topic is as soon as I moved in there. And I think people thought I was crazy when I was like, what do you mean these PFAS? You know? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think if we can keep educating, and I think this is a great way to educate more people about where they are, like how bad they can be for you and like, let's try and minimize those. But it, it's also another scary thing of like, if they try to replace them, hopefully what they replace them with isn't more toxic than the PFAS because we've seen that so many times with like flame retardants and other things where the, the newest one, they just put it out there and then they wait basically for the toxicology tests for a couple of years until people start getting sick. Oh, that's really bad practice. Like I, you couldn't do that with like a new medicine. Like you have to have everything shown up front that it's safe before you could ever put anything out there on the market. That's that's yeah. an incredible difference in how they're regulated, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So I guess, okay, going back to education, you know, you, you bring up a good point about, you know, if Starbucks moves away from this, this could be, you know, a good corporate move that that would get a lot of attention. We've seen positive things like that happen as well. If you think about when Walmart started to enter into the selling of organic produce, organic dairy, that was a big movement um, that really made it more popular across a, a wider array of chains and the move away from antibiotics and our poultry mm -hmm. also again instigated by one of the larger chains that kind of trickled down so i think i think anytime you get a, a large company that that takes a stand and often a very public stand maybe as part of their marketing right <laughs> but it raises awareness and and maybe others will follow so i guess my my note to all the listeners out there is just you know educate yourself look up and see which types of products contain these chemicals. We know that the nonstick pans, many of our nonstick pans do, um, especially with Teflon pans. If you think about any of your kind of wrappers, your, your, your paper coated wrappers and PFAS, 
your popcorn bags. I've got to make a note to myself to stop licking that bag. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, just, just being aware of where these are. And I, I think, you know, we owe it also to our, our first responders, you know, to our firefighters to really have safer options for them um, because they're really getting much higher levels of exposure whenever they're using these flame retardants and, and foams. Especially yeah. when you think of how much we're seeing in the pine trees that are just atmospheric based. And then you think spraying that directly and like you see them going to the mm -hmm. fire, but how much of that is just getting, getting in, in a yeah. hail. Inhaled and body contact as well. I don't know how much is absorbed across the skin. That's a, uh, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't know about the dermal either. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's some studies out there, but I don't know if it's really been done a lot because they don't want to put it on things. Yeah, of course. Of course. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for, for sharing this with us. I think what you're doing is so incredibly important. I think that all the listeners will agree we need more scientists like you that can help us as like the, you know, the chemical detectives out there to really see where what's happening um, with these with these byproducts of, of kind of our global food economy and how that's going to ultimately impact our health. And um, this has just been really informative. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded today on Restream. I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in every week. You can find this and all of our other episodes at foodiepharmacology.com. You can find us on any of your favorite um, podcast streaming platforms. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And you can also catch us on our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany in the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. I want to thank our producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth from Co-Conspiracy entertainment for putting out a great show each and every week and thank you our listeners for tuning in and staying with us i love to hear from you if you want to reach out to me by email or, or shoot me a message on twitter share the episodes with your friends um that would be great stay healthy out there we'll see you next time